Welcome to the Beamsville Church of Christ online ministry. This week's message is titled, Following Jesus Outside the Camp. Thank you to Dave, Amy, Diane, Ed, and Paul for being part of the video. The scripture reading is Hebrews 13, 12 to 16. I'd like to welcome you all here and for those who are out to come and take a seat. We have... Uh, we are thankful that the students have returned from their little holiday between semesters. Welcome back. We have birthday news. Janet, who is not here, is, is she? Coming in later. Okay. You can wish Janet a happy birthday. And Daniel... Uh, also having a birthday this week. No anniversaries. Prayer requests. Uh, Michael has come home. He's through his surgery. He was recovering at Julian Allen's. And he got his bandages off, I think, Friday. And Rhonda gave me a quick update that he will be going home today. There is still a question of how much uh, recovery and sight restoration is going to happen. So he is going back to the doctors next week for another evaluation on how successful the operation was. Keep him in your prayers. We also have a number of people, uh, Lindsay and her husband Daniel, uh, with his brain cancer and tumors. I want to keep them in our prayers. Lynn, who is awaiting treatment for a heart condition. Diane's neighbor, Renee, who's struggling with pneumonia and COVID. Pam, who's continuing to recover. And a number of our family who are mourning and who are dealing with health issues, we pray for them and their caregivers. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll bring you a short reading from Psalms. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and appreciate so much the privilege of your presence that surrounds us each and every day and every minute of our lives. As we gather together here as an assembly to worship and praise you, we thank you. We thank you for healing. We ask for comfort for those who are dealing with issues of health and other problems in their lives. May we be guided to serve, to serve those in need. Empower us, Father, through your spirit and our belief and faith in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Psalm 63, the first five verses, are written by David, and he is in a desert 
of Judah when he wrote this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Good morning. Um, we're going to share in communion in a minute, and I know that we don't always announce this, but I also know that we have some people here who have never been here before. Um, some students have just joined us, and uh, some people are visiting. At the back, we have cups on that back table. If you would like to participate in communion, and this is not required, but if you want to participate in communion, uh, please feel free to pick up a cup from the back. This morning, Paul is going to be preaching on under the sermon title, Following Jesus Outside the Comforts of the Camp. And this immediately brought to my mind the story of Rahab. Um, I love the stories of the Bible. I find stories are how I connect. Um, the long list of instructions and poetry, my brain kind of slides off of that. But a story, a good story, I can always get into. Um, so... I am going to, we're going to watch a video that recaps the story of Rahab. Okay, so we often hear Bible stories like this. They are kidified. Uh, they are a little bit tame. Um, and we have this cutesy music in the background and cartoons, and we can follow this and say, this is pretty good. Um, Rahab's story is actually really gruesome. They are about to be invaded, and she betrays her own people to the Israelite spies and says, save me, because I know your God is God. And we have, there's a lot more gray in the Bible than we give it credit for on the first read. Um, and we have this cute little ending to this video of, even better, uh, she was one of the ancestors of Jesus. And that is a really fantastic part of the story. But where I want to focus today is on Paul's uh, following Jesus outside the comforts of the camp. In Joshua 6, 22 and 23, we hear what happens kind of in the in-between. Uh, the Israelite army is about to invade, is about to take over Jericho. And Joshua said to the two men who spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance to your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought the entire family out and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. That outside the camp of Israel, they didn't belong right away. They were not included right away. We don't go from being a Jericho woman to being an Israelite woman overnight. There is a lot of transition time, and we don't know how much that transition time is, but they lived outside the camp of the Israelites, not included in Jericho, not included in the slaughter of Jericho, but also 
not included in this new group either. I think this is a universal feeling. Uh, there is a syndrome called imposter syndrome where we feel like we're maybe not good enough or maybe not qualified enough. Imposter syndrome keeps you from applying for a job that maybe you could get and maybe you would be good at, but your brain says, I don't belong here. I'm not going to be good enough. It keeps you from applying to a university or saying yes to a university because you think maybe I'm not smart enough. It keeps you from trying out for a team. It keeps you from uh, going for a promotion. It keeps us back in situations. And I think sometimes in our faith, we have imposter syndrome. We say, I am not enough. We use the language of us and them when we're talking about church. We say, I think the church should, uh, not I think we should. Um, I think they could instead of I am part of this. And we have this imposter syndrome in our faith that says, I am not enough. I'm not really part of this group. It's a them thing. And they have their lives together. And my life is a mess. Here's a sneak preview. We all feel that way. Uh, we all have imposter syndrome in our faith because we are not enough. You are not enough. I am not enough. Only Christ is enough. He is the one who brings us into the camp. He is the one who makes us his own. And it can be messy and it can be slow, um, but it is his doing, not ours, that works out our salvation. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for inviting us into your camp. Uh, God, we thank you for being the God who saves and being the God who includes. Uh, God, help us to have your eyes to see where inclusion needs to happen in your midst, uh, where we can be more inclusive. Uh, God, help us to see ourselves through your eyes and to see each other through your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. When I thought about the topic uh, of the sermon today, about being outside of the camp, I thought, well, maybe it'll have something to do with um, pressing into those difficult things in our lives and how we go about that. And I think that I think that we have to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. He's calling us to, to go and to be his people. But it's really his battle. And we have to remember that. And I think if we do remember that, it'll give us courage to be in the battle. I'd invite you to stand as we sing. Good morning. Okay, Hebrews 13, uh, 12 to 16. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. 
Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For he, here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Thank you. Hello. Before we get into the sermon proper today, um, uh, two things. One, I have a toddler. Um, and two, uh, this is actually a, a perhaps an illustration of what we're going to talk about. Um, uh, my comfort level right now is lower than when it was 15 minutes ago. Um, because I would really prefer to preach in a clean shirt. Uh, however, uh, the need of my four-year-old to have a positive experience Sunday morning, uh, to hopefully, as, as much as it depends on Heather and I, which, which it certainly isn't only dependent on that, to help him grow in faith and his young faith and hopefully uh, come to know Christ uh, as he gets, gets older, is a much more important thing than my slight discomfort of preaching in a coffee-stained shirt. I don't know. You probably have to use Comet or something. Anyway, that's a problem for future Paul. Uh, so perhaps a, a little illustration of what we're going to talk about this morning. Hebrews 13, 12 through 16 is our text. The words need and comfort are fairly easily understood, definitionally. The need, to need is to require something because it is essential or very important. To be comfortable is being in ease or a state of relaxation. The, uh, the hard part is determining what is a need or a comfort for each person. If you live in downtown Toronto or New York or some other large city with lots of good transit, then having a car is a comfort, likely not a need. But if you live where we did in rural Saskatchewan, where in any direction you had to go an hour to get to a stoplight, having, not having a car is not just uncomfortable, but it could threaten your daily needs. The same thing can be a need to some and a comfort to others. Even the same person at different points in their own lives, the same thing could be a comfort or a need. Uh, if you lived in downtown Toronto, then moved to Kenosi, Saskatchewan, that same car could be a different need or comfort, depending on where you are and what place you are in your own life. Today, we're going to talk about needs and comforts. This is a difficult area to make general applications uh, because depending on your life, the application will change dramatically. But, not, but nonetheless, the Bible encourages us to move uh, from a place of comfort to a place where we're meeting needs and whatever that looks like in our lives. 
let's quote uh, Hebrews 13, uh, verse 13. Thank you, uh, everyone who has served uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, I was going to make a joke about the battle belongs to the Lord in regards to my four-year-old toddler. I forgot to do that. Uh, but it is also applicable there, too. Um, Hebrews 13, 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. The point of Hebrews 13, 12 through 16, let me suggest, is we move towards needs, not towards our comfort. The central call for us is to go outside with Jesus, outside of the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. That is to move with Jesus towards serving needs and not towards serving our comforts. This is the command in verse 13 based on Jesus' own death, how it happened and what it accomplished. In verse 12, Jesus sanctified the people through his own blood. That's what it accomplished. Suffered outside the gate. That's where and how it happened. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, In other words, he says, join Jesus in his sufferings. Because Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the city, we move from the camp of security, of familiarity, of ease, and willing to bear the shame with him on that Calvary road, uh, we sacrifice with Jesus. And because he died there to sanctify us, we do not do this with our own strength, as Ed uh, suggested with his final song, Uh, or virtue, uh, or as an act of imitation, but we do it in the strength and holiness that Christ purchased us through his death, and therefore he will provide for us. The main point is, with a Savior like this, who does that, this is how we are to live. We are to live as we move towards meeting the needs and not living in our own comfort. Now, you can say, Paul, that's great, but that could be misused. Some might say that moving towards needs and not comforts means that I should allow people to take advantage of me or make intentionally bad decisions. Uh, Apart from the fact that life in general includes a significant risk of being taken advantage of or making bad decisions, uh, it's true that living a life that follow Jesus towards meeting needs and away from worldly comforts does make those things more likely. That is part of the risk of following Jesus. Those risks, from a worldly point of view, look foolish. From a worldly point of view, we don't see the potential benefits from these risks. From a godly point of view, we can see that the risks are outweighed by the rewards of a healing soul, both the person we're risking and our own as we we meet needs around us. Still, from a worldly perspective, it is a radical thing to do. The radical call of Jesus to join him outside the camp, to go outside the city gate, to bear the shame that he bore, can always be caricatured and ridiculed and made to look foolish from those around us. So let us go to him outside the gate, bearing the grace he bore, verse 13, because, verse 12, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. The way that he died and why he died make all the difference to us whom he calls to go with him. 
The way he died was outside the gate, outside of the seeming comforts and security of, and familiarity of that city, of Jerusalem, of the holy city. On Golgotha, willingly, sacrificially, lovingly, he died, verse 13, to sanctify the people, to make us different than the rest of the world, to make us holy and loving and radical and risk-taking and utterly captivated by another destiny other than what this world has to offer. Consider the next verse, 14, to get a handle on what these sanctified people are like. What does sanctification really mean? Christ died to sanctify the people, that is, to produce the kind of people who are willing to think of their whole lives as going with Christ outside the camp to bear the shame he bore. How so? What happened to these people? Verse 13 shows us. Verse 14 shows us. They are willing to go with Jesus on the Calvary road towards need, not comfort. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. What is the point of all of this? The point is that Christ did not die to make Niagara, in this age, a paradise. He died so that we, so that we would be willing to stop trying to make our lives paradises on earth, or Niagara, or anywhere else, by what strength? Because, we're, because we enjoy the suffering? Because we enjoy pain? No, but because we're seeking the city that is to come. Verse 14, we are here. We do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city that is to come. Our motive is to go outside the camp, outside uh, the city, towards need, not comfort, bearing the shame he bore, caring about people, because there is a greater more permanent city coming, the city of the living God, Hebrews 12, 22. It is better than what this age has to offer. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am a, a part, one of my degrees is in urban and regional planning, so I have an itch about road layouts and building placements and zoning. Is, is this a thing anybody else cares about deeply? Thinks about a lot in there? No? Oh, well, that's weird. Um, so I love... On my computer, I will always have a tab open on Google Maps because I'm always looking around at various downtown cores and looking out, oh, how does this road meet here? Oh, how does this intersection go here? Think of the most wondrous, important, long-lasting cities on this planet, uh, your Rome's, your Athens. Uh, maybe in the New World, it would be New York. I don't know. Um, nothing on Earth compares to the long-lasting, everlasting city that is to come. There is no grandeur of a New York or a Colosseum of, of Rome that compares to what the glory will be of the city that is to come. It is better than anything this age has to offer, will last forever, and the best of all, God will be there undiminished in glory. We can see this pattern over and over in Hebrews. We see it in 10.13, where the Christians uh, move towards need and not comfort by visiting prisoners. It cost them their property. They rejoiced. Hebrews says, because you knew that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were seeking a city that is to come, not the comfort and paradise on earth. They move towards need, not comfort. In 11, 25, and 26, Hebrews talks about Moses moving towards need, not comfort choosing rather to endure ill treatment with people of God rather than enjoying the pleasing, pleasing, the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt itself. 
Why? By what power? Verse 26 says, because he was looking for the reward. That is, he was looking for the city that was to come. In 12.2, where Jesus moved towards need, not comfort, when he endured the cross and despised its shame. By what power? Verse 2 says, it's because of the joy set before him. The joy of what is to come. We see in 13 verses 5 and 6 where Christians move towards need, not comfort, by keeping their lives free from the love of money and being content with what they have. Verse 5, for God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I fear not, what can man do for me? I am now and always will be safe in the keeping of God. I am a citizen of the city which is to come and nothing can separate me from it. That is where my true comfort lies, not wherever I happen to be today. This is a particular um, importance to me, some of you know. Uh, before a year and three months ago, I was never actually admitted to a hospital in my life. I guess maybe being born, technically you're admitted. I don't remember getting the little wristy thing though. Um, and I, I, was in, I was in the physical premises of the hospital when Ellis was born for five days in Regina, but I was not technically admitted, so I had to buy my own food. Um, that was one of the things, and I didn't get a bed. Um, but before, a little while ago, I was never admitted, and since then, I've been in the hospital too many times. And the idea of needs and comforts has become a lot more personal to me. What do I truly need? What do, what is, what do I truly, what is truly my, my level of comfort? And trying to work through that is something that now I'm a lot more cognizant of. The point of verse 13, 14 confirmed again and again, Christ did not die to make the cities of this age or towns or countryside or any place I happen to be a paradise. He died so that we would be willing to, to stop making our own lives paradises on earth. And indeed, and instead, go with Jesus outside the camp of comfort and familiarity and security to where those needs are. We move towards need and not comfort because we look for the city that is to come. Radical confidence in the glory future of God that is God with us and that, what is, and that Christ died to produce. When it takes hold of us, we will be sanctified, verse 12, and then we'll go towards need, not comfort. So let's get more specific. What's involved in this life that moves towards need and not comfort? Uh, to live outside the city gate, outside the camp, on that road with Jesus. Uh, and looking towards that city that is to come. Verse, 16, verse 15 says that, a life of, that it, it is a life of praise to God. Real, heartfelt, verbal praise, the kind that comes out of our mouths as the fruit of overflow of our heart. Verse 15, through him, this Jesus, then let us confidently offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks, literally, to confess his name. In verse 16, it says, it is a life to love people. Real, practical, uh, sharing of your life for the good of others. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for, sharing for with such sacrifices God is praised. In other words, when we go with Jesus to the place of his sacrifice outside the camp, we see more clearly than ever his sacrifice for us. The sacrifice of himself, once for all sinners, 
brings an end to all sacrifices except for two kinds in this text. The sacrifice of praise to God and the sacrifice of ourself so that we may love others. So here we go outside the camp on Calvary Road with Jesus, bearing the shame he bore, moving towards need, not comfort. Where is it heading? Uh, practically for us this afternoon or this morning, uh, maybe that looks different uh, this week, this year. Perhaps it's a road that leads to praying for people around us throughout the week, looking for opportunities to serve as we go through our lives, to maybe to participate in local community events, whatever that might be for you, volunteering our time for good causes, or to become uncomfortably entangled in people's lives so that we may share the love of Christ, including our own lives, in hopes of growing towards faith together. The road that Jesus was on led towards needs, not comfort. And there are thousands of possible places uh, where that could be met. And all, I would argue, involve love and praise. Prayer, my prayer today is that we want to cash it all in and do something radically different with our lives. My prayer is that among us, God would use uh, this word from Hebrews 13, 13, to shake us to the foundations and loosen us of our place and send us to the people of Niagara or wherever we happen to be with the gospel of the glory of the grace of God, Jesus Christ. Leave the comfortable camp. This might mean leaving the comforts of home that we've come to cherish. Uh, it might mean leaving that comfortable, secure job. It might mean leaving that paid off house, which right now in Niagara, that is important. Uh, it might mean leaving the comfort of not saying anything or not doing anything. It might mean none of these things, depending on your situation, or it might mean much, much more. It can mean many different things to many different people, but it always means joining Jesus on the Calvary Road towards people's needs and not towards my comfort. So as we close up today, I want to leave you with... Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone know the name Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Yes, uh, arguably a good illustration of someone who moved towards need and not comfort. If you've heard this before, bear with me. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was born into a family where faith was not much of a concern or topic of conversation. But as a 14-year-old, Diedrich Bonhoeffer announced that he was going to be a pastor and theologian. His family was stunned and his, his older brother said that the church was powerless, irrelevant, and unworthy of Dietrich's commitment. Dietrich responded to his brother that if the church is really what you say, then I shall have to reform it. The day came that when the young man began his university studies in theology at Tübingen, uh, and then went to complete his studies in Berlin, his doctoral dissertation exposed his brilliance and he was becoming better known beyond the borders of Germany for his theological papers. In 1930, Bonhoeffer went to the United States as a guest lecturer at one of the best known seminaries. He was dismayed at the casual, lax attitudes of the American students as they approached theology. Unable to remain silent any longer, he informed all of the pastors-to-be Quote, at this liberal seminary, the students sneer at fundamentalists in America, when all the while the fundamentalists know more, know far more of the truth and grace and mercy and judgment of God. Diedrich was a gifted scholar, professor, 
but deep in his heart, he was a pastor. He was, by 1933, he had left the university uh, behind and was a pastor of two German-speaking congregations in London, England. Uh, by now, the life and death struggle for the church in Germany was underway as Hitler wielded more and more influence in all aspects of German culture. Bonhoeffer began to struggle with the idea, does the church live by the gospel alone or can the church and the state become intermingled so the church supports the ideologies of a state? These were tough questions when you have a leader like Adolf Hitler swaying the church leaders. Bonhoeffer came to the conclusion that the church must live by the gospel alone and avoid intermingling with the state or we rendered no church at all. An older professor of theology who had conformed to the Nazi ideology of the day in order to keep his job told Dietrich, it is a great pity that our best hope for the faculty is being wasted on the church struggle. As the struggle intensified, it was noticed that Bonhoeffer's sermons became more confident in God's victory and more defiant. At the same time that Bonhoeffer was becoming more defiant of Hitler's influence on the church, there was another sermon being preached in the Church of Germany. On January 15, uh, 25th, 1934, Adolf Hitler called hundreds of pastors and leaders from the churches in Germany to a personal conference in Berlin. He was concerned about the possible split amongst the pastors concerning his policy over the German church. He criticized, threatened them, reminded the ministers that the economy in Germany was in great recovery and that he needed their unified support. He told them, you confine yourself to the church, I will take care of the German people. Hitler was persuasive, he mesmerized the pastors, and the church became silent during the Nazi Holocaust. The pastors aligned with them themselves with Hitler. They placed a swastika on their pastoral robes, and in doing so, they turned the backs on the church and on Christ. Uh, Martin Neil Muller, uh, who along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer founded the Confessing Church in Nazi Germany, rose up in opposition to Hitler during the meeting. He said, and this is a quote, we are not concerned with the churches in Germany. Jesus Christ will take care of them himself. We are concerned with the heart and soul of our nation. With that courageous statement in the face of a tyrant, you would have thought the pastors would have applauded him. Instead, he was ushered over the meeting by several pastors and harshly condemned for causing trouble and ruining the possibility of building a relationship with the powerful leader of Germany. It was the men of God who silenced the very voice of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. Diedrich would live by that statement as his opposition brought more and more attention and persecution. Bonhoeffer would not back away from his belief that there could only be one Fuhrer and leader for Christians, and it was not Hitler. Lutheran bishops and pastors remained silent in the hope of preserving institutional unity. In the face of weak leadership, Bonhoeffer's warned his fellow ministers that they ought not to pursue converting Hitler for what they needed most to be converted themselves. He was crystal clear, this is an Anglican bishop of the day, he was crystal clear in his convictions and young as he was and humble-minded as he was, he saw the truth and spoke it with a complete absence of fear. Bonhoeffer himself wrote to a friend about this time, said Christ is looking down at us and asking whether there is anyone who still confesses him. The plot thickened 
And although Bonhoeffer was a pacifist early in the war, he was now convinced that Hitler would have to be removed. He joined with several high-ranking military officials who secretly opposed Hitler and planned to assassinate him. The plot was discovered, April 1943. Bonhoeffer would spend the rest of his life the next two years in a prison before he was executed. Bonhoeffer always believed that God's providence places us where we are and that we are to share the gospel regardless of the situation. His ministry for two years to his fellow prisoners awaiting execution. One of Bonhoeffer's fellow prison mates was Captain Payne, an Englishman who survived the camp and to pay tribute to the prison camp pastor, Bonhoeffer was different. He was calm, normal, seemingly perfectly at ease with the situation. His body really shone, his soul really shone through the dark and desperation of our prison. He was one of the very few men that I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. Bonhoeffer was taken out of the prison and taken to Florsburg, Florsburg uh, in an extermination camp in the forest. And on April 9th, three weeks before the American forces liberated that camp, he was executed. Today, a tree is there from which he was hanged that bears the plaque with only 10 words on it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, at witness to Jesus Christ among his brethren. Bonhoeffer lived for the needs, not for his comfort. You may say that Bonhoeffer's example was not, it's not applicable to us today. After all, we're not in the Second World War. Our government is not forcing us to do anything, at least to that extent. And this is true. Period of time is different, but let me suggest to you that our lives, our world, our church, our community is in need of reform too. From conditions internal and external, we need people to stand up and fight for, for Christ-centeredness wherever it might be lacking. The simple truth is this, Christ did not call us to be comfortable, but rather to the needs of those people inside these walls and outside. May we commit to look for and act on people's needs around us and choose to live and choose to leave the comforts of this world behind, whatever that may look like in our lives. May we join Jesus outside of the camp and offer our sacrifice of praise as he offers his sacrifice for us. In the spring of 1975, I was uh, received an acceptance letter from the University of Western Ontario to be participate in their Bachelor of Education program. And it was a kind of a unique program. We would go to school in August for a couple of weeks. And the first day of school, high school in September, I was in a school in Guelph. I had five classes and I had to start teaching right away with hardly any training. I was to find out fairly soon into this process that it was going to be more difficult than I even imagined because my supervising, one of my supervising teachers asked me sarcastically, are you a Christian? To which I said, yes, I am. To which he said, oh, good. We're going to have fun with you. He threw down the gauntlet for whatever reason. He said that they had a Christian in there the year before, and we really messed him up. So, this was uncomfortable, 
comfortable position because he is the person who is going to supervise my teaching and who is going to write reports so that I can get a job at some point in time in the future. He would ask me questions. So, how big is your church? Where does your church meet? Well, we met in the recreation hall in, in Guelph. What kind of a fly-by-night outfit is that? And then another time he asked me, so, how much do you give to your church? I said, really, it's none of your business. Ah, oh, come on, tell me. So I told him. And he said, makes this sarcastic comment, wow, that's two cases of beer a week. To which I said very gently, well, you can measure your life in cases of beer. I'm going to measure my life differently. Now, there were many conversations over the 16 weeks that I was in his presence that went something like that. He would say something, I would say something back, I would try to be kind about it. At the end of the time, I got a very glowing report on my teaching. And he said, you will never know how much of a difference you have made to the people in this department. I found out about five or six years later that he took a sabbatical from teaching. He went to the States and studied Bible for a, for a year. He had a very, very... Um, cantankerous marriage. He patched his marriage up and he was a changed person. I also found out from a friend who met him and, fed, and gave me feedback. He said that I was part of his journey. So sometimes in our lives we are uncomfortable in situations and we have to get over that discomfort. And not be belligerent or angry, but in a kind way, try to draw people to Jesus. I'd like to thank you for being here and joining with us in our worship. Thank Paul for his message and that we need to get outside the camp and I think the closing prayer of the book of Hebrews fits what the message of Paul had. So I'll read Hebrews 13, a couple of verses. It's all one sentence, though. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May grace be with you. Thanks for watching or listening. The Beamsville Church of Christ meets at 4900 John Street, Beamsville, Ontario. Scripture quotations marked NIV taken from the Holy Bible, New International Version, NIV, copyright 
2011 by Biblica, Inc. Used by permission. All rights reserved worldwide. You can find out more about the congregation on our Facebook page or at beamsvillechurchofchrist.ca.